1: With Discover, limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
2: The Volume.
1: NBA fans, the wait is over. Basketball is back. And DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA, is celebrating with an unbeatable offer. New customers can score $200 instantly in bonus bets for throwing down $5 on the NBA. Win or lose, it doesn't matter. You'll start the season with an instant dub. And with DraftKings parlays, everyone's got a shot at an even bigger basketball win. String together multiple bets from the same game or build your parlay across multiple games for a shot at making your payday even sweeter. Basketball's more fun when you're in on the action. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S. New customers can get $200 in bonus bets instantly for betting just $5. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code hoops. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800GAMBLER.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888 789 7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. Licensee partner Golden Nugget Lake Charles in Louisiana. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See sportsbook.draftkings.com slash basketball terms for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Alright, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Monday, everybody. Hope all of you guys had an incredible weekend. we got a jam-packed show for you today. We're going to start with the breakdown of the Cleveland Cavaliers and just their second game having their starting lineup together, notching a huge win over the Golden State Warriors yesterday, delivering them their first road loss of the entire season. And then, as I said last week, we're going to kind of be changing the format of the show for a little while now. We're going to be shifting to more deep dives into teams. We're still going to do game breakdowns. They're going to be a part of the show. But I find that we learn more about the teams when we take more time with one team to really dive into the tape, watch multiple games, and look at season-long trends. And so we're going to be doing a deep dive of the Cleveland Cavaliers in the second half of today's show. And then I have three mailbag questions for the end of the show as well. You guys are the drill. Before we get started, subscribe to our brand-new YouTube channel as we try to get this thing off the ground. It would mean a lot to me if you guys would scroll down and take a couple seconds to hit that subscribe button. Don't forget about our podcast feed, wherever you get your podcasts, under Hoops Tonight. Don't forget about our Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok feeds. Twitter in particular, I'm putting a lot of uh, video content on in the morning. So I put another 10 videos or so on there. Um, As you guys know, we have some limitations in our ability to use footage on YouTube. But I have a little bit more freedom with it on social media. So you're going to want to follow me there. And then last but not least, keep dropping mailbag questions in the YouTube comments. We can hit them towards the end of the show. Obviously, different setup today. As I told you guys last week, I've got painters uh, working in the main house. Um, So I'm sequestered back in my master bedroom for the rest of this week, which will be uh, a little bit weird with work from home. And uh, with my job being mostly watching film on a laptop, I'm going to feel like I'm kind of trapped for a little bit. I'm also injured right now. I'm dealing with an Achilles injury that's stopping me from playing basketball. Didn't tear it, but I'm dealing with some really bad soreness. I'm taking a break because... If I tear my Achilles, I'll spiral into depression with an inability to play basketball, so I'm just trying to take it slow. So it's going to be a weird week, but bear with me, and then back to the studio hopefully here in a couple of days. All right, let's talk some basketball. So last night, we got to see an example of the type of matchup that caused the Golden State Warriors problems last year, which is a significant amount of rim protection. Uh, centered around the two non-shooters in the lineup, right? In this case, Raymond Green and Kevon Looney, but it doesn't really matter who's in the lineup. They're going to find people to help off of with rim protection, essentially understanding that the, the Warriors are a team that basically likes to run these five-out actions and try to curl over the top and weaponize their shooting to generate wide-open looks in the paint. And so if you have the ability to legitimately protect the rim off of a non-shooter, it buys your defensive players, particularly on the perimeter, a ton of leeway to overplay the three-point line. And we saw this in the, Warrior, in the Warriors-Lakers series last year. This concept of like top-locking the shooters, basically forcing them to reject screens or to curl over the top and force them downhill into your rim protection. And then from there, basically uh, bothering shots with length, forcing turnovers, and then running it down the other way in transition, right? And this was kind of a perfect example of that type of matchup. We saw Evan Mobley on Draymond Green right from the opening tip. We saw Jared Allen on Kevon Looney right from the opening tip. It gives that freedom to those perimeter players to be aggressive. Cleveland held Golden State to just a 102 offensive rating. Golden State shot just 36% from the field. They were just 12 for 31 in the paint as the Cavs outscored the Warriors in the paint, 58%. To twenty four, And then obviously, what do we know about missing shots in the paint? Usually shots missed in the paint, particularly by perimeter players, cause floor balance issues. And uh, as players are unexpectedly rejected and don't get a shot up at the rim or miss uh, off the side of the rim, it ends up leading to a fast break the other way. A lot of the time, the Cavs scored 31 points in transition in this game. They were up over about a point and a quarter per possession on transition pushes. Warriors pulled within five in the in the early fourth quarter, made it look like they might make it a game, but the Cavs quickly pushed it right back out to double digits, and they ended up winning comfortably. Um, in general, this was kind of, I wouldn't say this is the first look, because we saw a lot of this in the second half of Indiana Pacers game, but this was a look at the defensive ceiling that this Cavs group is capable of. Again, Jared Allen had missed a bunch of time at the start of the year, and we saw some improved perimeter defense from the Cavs at the start of the year, particularly Donovan Mitchell playing much better perimeter defense than we're accustomed to seeing him. And then Max Strews being kind of a seamless fit uh, next to those two guys defensively, but they just didn't have the higher level rim protection. Evan Mobley at this point in his his career, I think he projects to be an excellent five in the long run, but at the five he's a little physically overmatched at this phase in his career, right? So getting Jared Allen out there just kind of brings them that classic uh, too big look. That is so difficult to deal with in the NBA regular season, which is essentially you guard and pick and roll with one of the bigs and then you have the other big kind of working off a non shooter as the low man kind of coming over to help uh, as a rim protector coming over to secure defensive rebounds or to rotate out to the weak side corner with his supreme athleticism. You see a lot from Evan Mobley, right? And he's been amazing as a help defender really for the entirety of his Cavs um, career. But that's that's kind of the, the the beauty of this whole thing, right, is those two guys and what they can do defensively on the back line paired with the elite perimeter defense. I'm not going to d- uh, dive too deep into it right now because um, uh, because we're going to do a deep dive on the Cavs in a little bit. But really, really happy with where the Cavs are defensively in their last three halves with their starters back. But let's talk about the Warriors for a little bit before we get to the Cavs. So, I specifically want to zero in. We've talked a ton of Warriors so far to start the season. I want to zero in on the bench unit for a little bit. Now, to be clear, this is not the reason they lost this game. The starters were minus eight, and in general, um, uh, or excuse me, when Steph was on the floor, the Warriors were minus eight. The starters, I believe, were minus four. So, like, it's hard to blame the bench when that happens. However, the bench didn't do as well in this game as they had done in earlier games this season. Um, The specific Moody, Kaminga, Gary Payton. Chris Paul and um, Dario Sarge lineup was minus seven in just four minutes in this game. Um, in general, they were minus three without Steph on the floor. So again, it wasn't the reason why they lost this game, but it, it was a, a little bit more of a, a of the negative end of the spectrum from what you got out of that lineup. And I want to zoom in on it because I think there's a specific thing from this group that is starting to come to the surface um, that could potentially be a problem in the long run. Not so much for the regular season, but more just for the ultimate ceiling of this Golden State Warriors team. So. As I've talked about uh, throughout the season, the defense of that group has been excellent, right? Gary Payton's taking your primary point of attack assignments. He's one of the best in the league at it. Moses Moody and Jonathan Kaminga are doing great work flying around in rotation and defending on the perimeter as well. That group has been a very nice pairing with Dario Saric um, in terms of like kind of limiting his rim protection issues by containing on the perimeter better, right? Uh, but the offense has been an issue, and that's something I talked about earlier. Like uh, they, uh, I think the last time we talked about the bench group, they were below 100 offensive rating at that point. Uh, but I wanna, I wanted to zoom in on the lineup because, in general, for the entire season now, they are now negative 8.5 points per 100 possessions. Now they've run bunch, a bunch of different bench configurations, but this is the primary one that they've been running, and they did not play well against the Cavs, and in large part, in my opinion, because they can't score. So. They're only scoring throughout the entire season at this point, 100 points per 100 possessions. And this is where we have to look at Chris Paul. I would say that the Chris Paul experiment with the Warriors has been a resounding success. He's an obvious fit with the bench group. He gets them organized. They definitely have, um, let's just say, not as low of lows as they did last year when Jordan Poole was leaving those units, right? So overall, it's been a success. I think in the big picture, Um, it's going to be a success for the entire season. However, against this Cavs matchup on the road, I think you saw an example of what can happen, though, if Chris Paul is not scoring like this. Because Chris Paul is really struggling to score the basketball. That's the one kind of gripe, so to speak, on the Chris Paul experiment so far. He's averaging a career-low 7.6 points per game, just 32% from the field, just 2 for 26 from 3. Just 14 for 44 on pull-up jump shots with zero threes. So 32% from the field and a 32% effective field goal percentage because you're not getting any of that extra point from threes, right? Hasn't hit a single pull-up three the entire season. He's also only made five shots at the rim all season. A Chris Paul pick and roll to this point is only worth 0.8 points per possession. And on isos against switches, he's just three for 15 from the field. Now, again, he's orchestrating the unit very well. Up until recently, the unit's been performing well on the scoreboard despite the offensive limitations. But this is an example of what you actually need Chris for, right? So an elite defensive team that protects the room really well, that kind of team is always going to give young players trouble because young players typically struggle against elite defenses They kind of figure out all those little nuances, right? And what you need in that situation is just two or three more times a game where Chris can go get a bucket, right? And look to be aggressive when nothing else was working. Against those Cavs coverages because their rotations were so sharp, you weren't getting anything at the rim and you weren't getting wide open kick out threes, right? And so at a certain, at least not for the your knockdown shooters. So at a certain point, what's there is in the drop coverage, you know, especially when like guys like Darius Garland are out there, like you can still get separation against them in pick and roll. You gotta have someone who can rise up and knock a shot down, which Chris absolutely can. He just hasn't done so yet this season. And again, that's the thing to keep an eye on. It's not so much that Chris can do it. It's just a question of when he will, right? Now, the counterpoint to that is he's old, right? So that's the issue. As you look at those numbers relative to his previous seasons, they're down a lot, right? Obviously, he's slumping. The question is, is he going to snap out of it? I think yes. But I'm saying that he needs to. And the main reason why is because that's why you make the trade. You make the trade so that Chris can, especially in that matchup against rim protection teams, that are packing the paint. You need another guy who can run pick and roll to spell Steph and consistently generate quality shots. And he can do it as a bench shot creator on the day and day, day out of the regular season. But that on the road tough game against an elite defense—that's kind of a, a good, a good kind of microcosm of what a playoff situation would look like. That's an example of a game in the playoffs where you have to lean heavier on pick and roll and spreading the floor out. And you desperately need Chris to just be a little bit more productive offensively. Again, not a big deal at this point in the season. Just a trend to keep an eye on. The trend is the bench unit is struggling to score, in large part because Chris is struggling to score. And he's specifically missing a lot of shots that he normally makes. So that's the trend. We'll see what ends up going on in the bigger picture.
0: Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats,
2: Whether you're a seasoned wrestling veteran or a fresh-faced newcomer, we promise an experience like no other. So buckle up, wrestling fans. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw
2: the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to
0: stand the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon.
1: We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. All right, let's do our deep dive on the Cleveland Cavaliers. So they improved to three and four after beating Golden State. Um... The Indiana game was the other game where we saw all five of the starters. That was the uh, first game of the NBA Cup on Friday on the road. Uh, Ran into a buzzsaw, so to speak. And Indiana is going to do that to teams. They're really, really fast and athletic, especially on the perimeter. And so they're one of those teams where on the road, when they're fueled by their home crowd, they can be kind of a a gigantic pain in the ass to deal with, for lack of a better term. Right? Uh, They dug themselves in a seventy to fifty-three hole, but they came out in that second half and immediately just put the Pacers in jail and got out and ran the other way and immediately made it a game. They actually took a four-point lead in the fourth quarter. Super, super impressive defensively in the second half of that game. They ended up losing, you know, based on base like kind of typical late-game stuff that can happen going either way, right? Like Buddy Heald ended up catching a heater, making a couple threes. He made one off of a Max Strews turnover where Max was kind of draped over him from behind, and he just somehow made it. Buddy Heald's one of the best shooters in the league. That's what he's going to do sometimes. The Cavs had two crucial late-game turnovers that killed them. Where they got stops, one where Evan Mobley just inexplicably threw like a ninety-mile-an-hour bounce pass that was too far ahead of Darius Garland and went out of bounds. And then Darius Garland did the same thing when he tried to throw a swing pass across the floor in transition to Donovan Mitchell that got stolen. Um, but so, so it's tough because it's a loss and it's a loss in pool play for the playing for the 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 uh, NBA Cup. But at the same time, I thought that second half was actually a really, really impressive showing. From the Cavalier defense, they uh, gave up a 102 defensive rating in the entire game against Golden State, which is like unbelievably good against an offense that's been pretty effective all season so far this year, and has a player in Steph Curry who's been arguably one of the arguably the best player in the league to start the year, depending on who you ask, right? And then they gave up a 104 defensive rating in the second half against the Indiana Pacers. That's that's what this team is capable of when they're really locked in. And again, like there's still little things. Like, Darius Garland, to me, still is the easiest entry point into that defense, and it can cause problems. There was this weird moment at the end of the Pacers game where, like, uh, Tyrese Halliburton, just, just he was having success just beating Darius Garland off the dribble. Once in ISO, and then another time in pick-and-roll where he just got by him too easily. But he got easy buckets just, just beating Darius Garland off the dribble. And then he just randomly decided, actually, I'd rather attack Jared Allen, and he started calling for ball screens, and Jared would switch. And then uh, Jared actually got a really nice stop on Tyrese, where he blocked him on a drive. And then Tyrese just made a prayer, like an absolute prayer, step back three on the right wing that arced seventeen feet in the air. It seemed, and, and somehow went in. Uh, but in general, like that's that's an issue in the big picture, right? Like Jared Allen can switch onto the perimeter and guard pretty well. So can Evan Mobley. Uh, I like Stroos defensively. We're going to talk about him more in a minute. Donovan Mitchell's having a good season defensively. Karis Levert is one of their better perimeter defenders. But Darius Garland is—he competes like I, I genuinely—I'm impressed by how often he puts his body on the line to get back in front of people. He does sprint around in rotation, and he, and he is a willing participant in the defense. But his physical limitations do become an issue in late game situations, as you saw with Tyrese Halliburton. Like, hey, get out of the way! I'm just going to beat Darius off the dribble and get into the paint, and that—and that's something that we saw a lot in the Knicks series they, as they attacked, um, specifically R.J. Barrett and Jalen Brunson, spent a lot of time attacking Darius Garland, so. That's the thing. Like, I'm really impressed by the Cavalier defense in general. They're, uh, in spite of, um, in spite of the injuries to start the year, they're still 11th in defensive rating, eighth in half court defense according to Cleaning the Glass, uh, middle of the pack for transition defense, 15th in frequency, 19th in efficiency. They're allowing the sixth fewest points in the paint per 100 possessions, and opponents are shooting just 58.5 percent on them inside the restricted area, which is top five in the league. Uh, middle of the pack three-pointers allowed, 15th and opponent three-pointers made per 100, 23rd in, in percentage. Uh, offensive glass is still a major issue. They're grabbing just 69% of available defensive rebounds. That's 27th in the NBA. Now, remember, that was one of the major things that got them beat in the Knicks series, too, was just an inability to finish off defensive possession. So, like, in general, I, I'm really happy with where the Cavs' defense is. Their perimeter defense, I think, is much better than it was last year. Max Struess has been such a great fit. Offense has been iffy, right? Like he's not shooting the ball super well. He's 19 for 63 on jump shots. A big issue with him taking really tough movement jump shots all the time. Like he's actually dead eye when he's spotting up. It's when he's taking these wild drifting threes coming off of screens that he's missing. As a matter of fact, by the numbers, he's uh, shooting 60% effective field goal percentage in spot up situations, 1.23 points per spot of possession, which is like amazing, but he's just four for 15 when he's coming off a screen. So like. It's been a little bit of a mixed bag with Max offensively, but I think that can be fixed with approach. Defensively, I think it's been a home run. He's just like he's like 90% of the Isaac Okoro experience in terms of his competitiveness on the defensive end on the perimeter. Teams are picking on him in switches because they think he's easy to score on, but he's not. As a matter of fact, teams are just shooting four for 14 from the field trying to attack Max Struess in isolation. So like, the perimeter defense, like I said, Donovan Mitchell's having his best perimeter defense uh, defensive season as a pro, in my opinion. Max Strus has been a great fit. LeVert's competing defensively. I even like Dean Wade just with his length and help, and especially on the defensive glass. The front the front court obviously is one of the best defensive front courts in the league. There's just the two things: Darius Garland as an entry point, still kind of an issue, and then the defensive glass. For whatever reason, this team, my guess, and you can kind of see it on film and long rebound situations, but this is a team that has athleticism in the front court. But they're a team that packs the paint, and gives up a lot of threes. What happens when you give up a lot of threes? You give up a lot of long rebounds. Is this a tall perimeter team? No. Darius Garland, Donovan Mitchell, two small guards. Even though Darius, uh, even though Donovan's a good athlete, right? You know, when you, Karis LeVert, Max Struess, we're talking about a bunch of guys that are not six nine freaky athletes, right? So like, this is not a team that's going to succeed in long rebound situations. But those are the two things to keep an eye on over the course of the season and biggest areas for opportunity at this point um, on the offensive end of the floor, a couple of specific things like uh, Evan Mobley. We want to keep an eye on him in short roll situations. Defensively, he's incredible. I, I clipped a couple clips of him today uh, from, uh, from a couple games from him playing defense and some of the, just the unbelievable help and recover situations that he can turn what looks like a compromised possession into all of a sudden he blocks a shot and we're running the other way, right? Like he's still, unbelievable in that regard but the big problem in that um in that game or series against the knicks was mitchell robinson's ability to kind of split the difference in pick and roll defense with him and jared allen and be able to effectively guard them both and that would uh, allow julius Randle to basically show high on ball screens without having to worry about getting punished on the back line right and there's a lot of talk about the perimeter shooting and it certainly is a big issue like there a lot like we just talked about max struce in spot up situations like. You're already seeing this year the benefit of what it's like having a guy at the end of the chain that's a knockdown three point shooter. And again, like Max is shooting like shit at the rim, and he's shooting like shit and uh, coming off the of screens. But when it comes to the stuff that's like the kind of stuff that you actually need from him in the Cavs offense in terms of finishing plays, he's doing a really really nice job there. And so like that that that's definitely a big part of it, and that's definitely going to help them in the big picture. But you need Evan Mobley in a two big system to be an offensive threat. We haven't seen too much um, so far this year. His uh, points per possession in the role is up a little bit from last year. He's at 1.1 point per possession. I'd like to see him closer to like 1.3 as the season progresses. He is three for four on hooks and floaters. He made less than half of them last year, so he's doing a little bit better uh, in a very small sample size on that end, but we're going to want to keep an eye on that. Donovan Mitchell's playing insanely well. Career-high 33 points per game on a career-high... 67% true shooting. His jump shooting's up. His rim finishing is up. He's up over 80% at the rim this year, which is insane. His assists are up. He's having the best defensive season of his career so far. Donovan Mitchell's just the last guy in the world you need to worry about for the Cavs. Darius Garland's having a little bit of a rough start, though. He's just one for 12 from three. He's turning the ball over a lot. And again, he's the weak link for them on the defensive end of the floor. So uh, a big area of improvement for the Cavs is just Darius Garland playing better. And he did have a better game against Golden State. And so maybe that's a sign of a positive trend. The core five, so Max Drews, Garland, Mitchell, with Mobley and Allen, they've played 46 possessions so far through two games, 122 offensive rating and 100 defensive rating for plus 22 points per 100 possessions. That's amazing. As a team, 104 defensive rating against Indy in the second half, 102 defensive rating for the game against Golden State. So a lot of stuff trending in a positive direction for the Cavs now that they're getting healthy. Um, again, just to keep an eye on the the entry point, Darius Garland, defensive rebounding, Darius Garland on offense improving, Evan Mobley on the roll. Those are the main things we want to keep an eye on. Everything else looks good, like Paris LeVert straight up took over the end of that Pacers game, just beating people off the dribble. Um, I love his isolation attack. It's kind of a a counter to everything Mitchell and Garland bring. Like I said, Dean Wade's uh, been an intriguing... Tristan Thompson was like legit good on defense against the Warriors, made a bunch of big plays. So like they're they're looking like a team that's coming together in a um uh, in a big way here early in the season. All right, guys. Before we get out of here, let's hit the mailbag. First question from Miles: How does altitude? I love this question. This is super interesting. How does altitude affect visiting teams early in the year? Do you feel that Dallas's poor transition defense partially was because of the atmosphere? So. I don't think it's it, altitude's a big part of it, but another big part of it's just on the road. Why is it that teams st- struggle struggle and transition on the road typically, and then just view the Denver Nuggets and their their altitude is basically an exaggerated version of that, for, uh, with this from the standpoint of um, altitude. Right. Here's the thing: when you're fueled by your home crowd and the energy that that brings, you just naturally run harder. It's just kind of like. Think about all the times during a basketball game when, like, you don't want to run, um, you know, whether it's back on defense or running the floor and transition on offense, and you're tired. And so you decide not to. And so you jog, you know. And it, God knows in our pickup games, as us uh, amateur basketball players, that we do it a ton, right? But, like, it's even when you're taking games seriously, there are times when you decide not to run and there are times when you decide to run. When you're fueled by the energy of your home crowd, you just always run. <laughs> like, there's no other way to put it. Like, you just. When you're really playing hard in front of your home crowd and like you're fueled by that energy, it's like you're sprinting back on defense every possession. Every time you secure a defensive rebound, you're sprinting the lane. And so for really for the road team, it's more about discipline than anything else. It's those decisions, those run or don't run decisions that you have to decide whether or not you're going to whether or not you're going to go. Right. And more often than not, on the road, there are moments where the young, energetic, it doesn't even necessarily have to do with age, but the energetic home player says, Screw it. I'm running. And then the the road dude decides to take that possession off and it ends up causing problems. But teams that are really good on the road are typically very mentally disciplined teams, meaning like they're teams that are very good at forcing themselves to make the same decision every time regardless. This is why teams that defend well typically play well on the road because defense travels. It's not about making shots. It's about your habits. Do you have a habit of every time a shot goes up, sprinting back in uh, transition defense? Do you have a habit every time? A defensive rebound gets gathered of running your lane in transition. If you have those habits, then you're going to be a better road team because habits are basically something you do involuntarily versus something that you have to consciously choose, right? Um, Next mailbag question. And again, to tie off off the Niles one, again, at altitude, it's just an even tougher version of that, right? Like when you're tired, you can still make the decision to turn and sprint back. It's just easier to do when you're fueled by the home crowd. And obviously, the Nuggets players are in a little bit better shape uh, practicing in those conditions. Next mailbag question from Jake. How do we parse lineup analytics? The Warriors' second team is looking great and often has a better plus minus, but they're also mostly playing the opponent's bench players. I'm sure someone's crunching the numbers numbers somewhere that accounts for matchups. So to me, lineup data, again, everything is relative to the circumstance. And we've talked about this before. It's not even just about lineup data. It's also about uh, play type data. So I primarily look at uh, box score metrics, Defensive rating, offensive rating, net rating. So like a, a pace-weighted metrics, right? And then I really look at play type data. So I love like looking at points per pick and roll, points per ISO, points per spot up possession, that, that sort of thing. I think those are the best indicators of like the scoreboard for that individual play type, right? And like for instance, in a spot up possession, you really are hoping for, a, from a good player, a good spot up player, about 1.2 points per possession. You want him to be able to consistently knock down catch and shoot threes and drive closeouts. For a pick and roll player, pick and roll is the initiation for every single possession. It's a lower percentage play. So like anything over one possession is like a home run, right? You know, so it's like everything is a little different. Each situation is 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 different. And so it doesn't make sense to just look at field, field goal percentage for two players if one of them constantly is playing in spot up situations and the other is constantly running pick and roll, which is just going to be harder, right? And so that, that's the kind of data I like to look at. But even then, there's context from the standpoint of like, how's the spacing off the ball? Because that's going to directly affect my ability to score and pick and roll or an ISO, right? Same thing even goes for spot-up situations. So, like, all there's always, like, a context to these sorts of things. And it's specifically with lineup data, a bench lineup, for instance, talk about the Warriors, for instance. Warriors bench, defending really well. But they're defending really well against bench lineups. So, what that means is, it doesn't mean you should start Moody and Kaminga because they're your best defenders. No, that's not the case. It's just they're doing a really good job within the context of bench lineups guarding opposing benches. And and uh, everything with that is is about kind of like parsing together where they're being used, right? Like uh you know, last year LeBron James was playing without a backup center. And so bench lineups got crushed with the Lakers. Doesn't mean LeBron's bad, it just means that it was a lineup construction issue. This year, Christian Wood off the bench has been one of the best weapons for the Lakers. So now LeBron's bench numbers are way better. Is it all LeBron? No, obviously LeBron's great in both situations. But there's lineup construction pieces there. Christian Wood has been one of the best players for the Lakers this year. He also has been coming off the bench, primarily in those LeBron groups. And so it's kind of influencing the plus-minus data there. It's not like LeBron suddenly got way better than he did last year in the playoffs. It's about lineup construction. So again, there's context to everything. Anytime you ever see a piece of data, you want to ask yourself, how is this piece of data actually translating to the court? And what's the context there? Anytime you see something on film, like let's say a guy makes a shot or a guy makes a play, you want to go to the numbers to see how often he's actually been able to do that. Every, every, uh, everything is about like kind of leaning on the opposite for context, if that makes sense. All right, lastly, before we get out of here, uh, way too early MVP race. Uh, it, uh, this person in the mailbag said it's between Steph and Luca. Who would you pick right now? I think Luca has a slight edge, but Steph is closing the gap. I'd give four guys uh, and I'm not going to pick any one of them in first place just because it's way, way, way too early. But there are four guys, in my opinion, that are off to like textbook MVP starts, right? Like Luca, um, because of the simple fact that his roster is kind of mediocre in terms of talent. They've been winning a lot of games to start the year and he's putting up just just absolutely obscene numbers. Right. So like the uh, start. Kyrie Irving is a co-star, but he's not viewed throughout the league in terms of value, like a star in, in the purest sense of the word, just because of the way he's destroyed his own reputation over the years. So like as a result of that, like he's got like kind of that part of the narrative down. In general, the roster's overachieving. That's there. He's uh, consistently considered a top-tier uh, um, superstar talent and with playoff performance to back it up. And he's putting up all the numbers that you need. So that's textbook. Steph, obviously, just playing the best basketball of his career while winning a lot of games for a team without a co-star. Nicole Jokic has been phenomenal, as the Nuggets have only lost once, so that's an obvious one for me. And then Jason Tatum, I talked about it. like They'd have to win 60-plus, 65 games, and he'd have to put up insane efficiency, 30-plus points per game. Like Tatum's doing that, too. So those are the four guys that I have my eye on here early in the year, but even then, I'm probably missing several guys because it's just so early. Um, so again, we, we won't really talk MVP until we get outside of 20 games or so, but out the gates, there's those four guys are the ones that have kind of stood out as like a typical, um, MVP starts. All right, guys, that is all I have for today. As always, I sincerely appreciate your support. We're going to be back tomorrow, breaking down more games from Monday night, as well as doing another deep dive on a team. And then we'll start our nighttime coverage on Wednesday. As always, I appreciate you guys. And I'll see you then.